Hi, Kindred. So good to see you. I'm so glad that you're here with us tonight. My name is Zach. Uh, if you haven't been here before or we haven't met, uh, Merry Christmas. I'm so glad that you're in the room with us. It's a thrill to us anytime you give us uh, an hour of your week. But on a night like tonight, I know Lindsay mentioned it already with all that's going on out there that I'm not going to think about for another hour or so. Thank you for being here with us. Uh, it's a crazy out there. Uh, we're so thrilled to have you with us. Uh, like Lindsay said, this is two years since we started. This is our third Christmas in this building. Uh, but we're celebrating a lot tonight. We're not necessarily celebrating that, uh, although we're proud of it and we're happy about it. We're not going to you know, celebrate two years of paying rent. We made it. It's good. And we're going to do it again next month and see if we can do it in a whole other year. So we're excited about that. But we're celebrating something that matters more than anything else. We're celebrating Jesus tonight in this place, a Savior born to us. Uh, the, the, the birth of Jesus, this event that uh, happened 2,000 years ago, right? A Savior being born into a world that needed a Savior, that was in the midst of, of challenges, both from their own behavior, their own lives, their own choices, and from a government that was oppressive to the people that Jesus was born to, the Jewish people. Uh, all the way to us today, as we go about our day-to-day and walk through this life that we live and have our own challenges that are right here in front of us, the places that we desperately need a savior in our own lives, the places that we desperately need to be saved from the ruin of the world that's around us. Uh, and this Advent thing that we've been doing, so this is our second year doing it, I love, I love this thing that we've been doing with Advent. We lit tonight the candle for love, right? One of the things that I really love about Advent is that the themes build on each other for four weeks. And they also have like a, I guess like a symbiotic relationship because they need each other as well. So the first week of Advent, we lit a candle for peace. And then uh, that peace gave us the space for the second week, which is hope, All right? So peace says it's hope born of peace. And then that hope uh, grows to inspire joy for the third week. And then the fruit of that peaceful, hopeful joy is love. And that's what we stand in tonight on Christmas. That's the payoff of the Christmas story is that we get to experience love in a way that is unexpected, in a way that, that we can even sometimes believe, but that's where we are. I think most of us probably by this point know the plot of the Christmas story more or less. I was just remembering, uh, I'm a huge Seinfeld fan, so if you don't like it or you're too young, I'm sorry, but when George is trying to convert to Latvian Orthodox and they go, do you know the tenets of our faith? He goes, I know the basic plot, right? Like, we know the basic plot of the Christmas story, most of us. We know uh, what the, the scenes that are depicted on cards or in movies or what that might look like. But as I read it and reread it this year, I try to have fresh eyes on it and notice new things. We have four Gospels in the Bible. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Some of these Gospels uh, treat this story almost not at all. They don't even talk about Jesus' birth. But for, for most of the, 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 the Gospels, we get the stories that are knit together or give like a little bit of a different angle on what we're reading. And so as I read and reread those this, this year, I noticed some things that maybe I hadn't before. And we're going to look at a couple of them tonight. But the thing that I noticed more than anything is that this whole story, this entire narrative of Jesus' birth of a Savior born into the world, is just marked by deep love, by, by a God that we see showing that love on display in the person of Jesus over and over again. And then along with that, if you've been here the last three weeks with us, uh, or maybe you caught up online, we've been talking about Mary, the mother of Jesus, right? Who's this unbelievable inspiration in ways that I, I, I guess I hadn't had my eyes open to uh, before. We talked about it. Lindsay did some really amazing heavy lifting with the actual humanity and feel of Mary as a person, as a real human being, and not just somebody in a story. 
And we centered all of that on this response that she gave that we looked at all the way back in week one when she's visited by an angel that tells this teenage girl, you're going you're gonna to be uh, carrying the savior of the world in your womb. And this response that she has in the book of Luke where she says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. So one of my favorite writers, Philip Yancey, he said this about this story. He said, often a work of God comes with two edges, great joy and great pain. And in that matter of fact response, Mary embraced both. She was the first person to accept Jesus on his own terms, regardless of the personal cost. I just love that. That's an inspiration, I think, to us today, no matter what we're facing whether the things that we're going through are good or bad or they're, they're the high point of our life or the low point of our life, if we have great joy or great pain, I think that this refreshes us and opens our eyes back up to how good Jesus is and how good the Christmas story is. So to refresh our brains just a little bit on the Christmas story, so we can get it on the same page. Mary, like I said, is a teenager, visited by this angel. And whatever your picture of an angel is, I guess go ahead and picture that for a second, whether it's a bright light or this stunning moment of the booming voice. Uh, if you've been with us for the last couple of years, Lindsay's showed us this terrifying image of like a rotating eye. Whatever it is that you need to picture, to picture an angel appearing and coming to an actual human being of flesh and blood and, and giving these orders and these, these, uh, these like, you know, terrifying news to, to a person, that's the moment that I want you to picture, right? It's this moment where this angel is about to change Mary's entire life. She says, you're going to have a baby that you're going to conceive by the work of the Holy Spirit. And that uh, the plan of your creator, this God that your family for generations has worshipped, that has a special mark on you, he wants your life to be this life. He wants you to be the one to usher in the Savior of all of humanity. And so her response is that remarkable line that we just saw. And essentially telling the angel, she believes that that's true. And that she's available to do whatever it is that she's asked and to, to go through whatever it is that she'll face. And what happens next is one, to me, the most interesting passages in all of the New Testament. It, it, we, we get Mary who's carrying Jesus. So literally, it's God with her. Jesus is with her in every moment. Lindsay talked about them sharing a, a body for nine months. They're together. She, she is with Jesus. And then she has this audience with an angel who speaks directly to her, who guides her, who frightens her, who inspires her, whatever you want to say with that. Mary is in this moment, I believe, a changed person. Whoever she was before this moment, this encounter, something totally different happens in the next moment. It's not a slow change. Mary is a completely different person. This is a truth that I think for all of us, we can't unsee or undo things that are significant in our lives that happen. Like those moments that, that mark us, we can't return to the way things used to be. I think the first time that anybody experiences Jesus for real is one of those moments, but we have lots of them throughout our lives. The book of Matthew tells us that Joseph also has an angel visit him. So Joseph, who would find out that this girlfriend, this fiance that he has, who he loves, who he plans to marry, he's gonna find out she's pregnant and he knows it's not his, right? He can do some math. And he's about to have an angel visit him as well and get him on the same page and be marked by this moment as well. Mary and Joseph are forever different after these encounters. So that we're, what we're looking at in this next part of Luke is Mary, after going through this, after being changed, is her embracing the presence of the Holy Spirit that is literally indwelled in her, that she's carrying and then responding to it. 
She goes and she visits a relative named Elizabeth, whose story we won't get into, but Elizabeth also is carrying a miracle baby of her own. She's uh, past an age of childbearing and, and she's carrying this baby that would later be known as John the Baptist. And we're probably, we're gonna meet him later in 2023. But for now, uh, that story's gonna, gonna sit there. But this is what Elizabeth tells Mary when she visits her. She says, blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. Here's the part that I keep thinking about as I've read this and read this. Mary's answer to that encouragement from Elizabeth is that she breaks out into song. She just starts to sing right there on the spot. Now, I'm not a big musicals person. Like, there's a couple I like, a couple that I think are okay. Most of the time, I find them just super corny. Anybody else with me, right? Like, the other night, my family's watching TV, and my kids do this thing where they kind of play, like, trailer roulette, where they'll just, like, click on a trailer for something, and we'll laugh at it, because it's awful, right? And they clicked on some really cringy acapella Christmas movie, and we watched the trailer... 16, 17 times because it was that good. And so we start reenacting this moment. Josie, uh, my wife, is with us. And after six or seven times, she gets up and goes to bed. But I still, in my head all day long, have been replaying that trailer in my head because it's so hokey and corny and it just cracks me up. But in a strange way, this is what we're encountering here with Mary. And I, and I think as improbable and weird as it maybe feels to me personally, I think this is a strangely kind of the picture in the Mary story that we get. She's so full of joy and awe, which is supposed to be the thing in these musicals, right? That these songs come out of a place that's real. Like her joy and her awe of who God is and what he's asked of her and what she gets to do. It's, it's in this moment that she's so different than she used to be. Just even a few hours ago, a few days ago, that she knows Jesus is with her and near and present and she just can't help but burst with song. Right? So the song that Mary bells out goes like this. I'm gonna have the band come back up. No, just I'm not gonna sing. Um, that's not gonna happen. <laughs> this is what the song goes like. She says, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He's performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. That's powerful. Mary can write a song, right? Meet Mary at midnight, right? You can go over, since she's Taylor Swift for her generation, she can write a song. But the content here though, is what is amazing. I'm sure that when she burst out into this song and the language she spoke in Aramaic, it probably rhymed, it probably had a beat, it probably was a really good song. So you have to work with it a little bit here. But the content is what is really incredible. She's doing straight theology. Like she's teaching all of the, New, the Old Testament right here in this one moment. She's predicting the work that this baby that's forming in her womb is going to perform. And then also this song is highlighting the nature of this person that she is, who God chose to carry the savior of the world. And she's this run-of-the-mill, normal person until she isn't, right? Until she musters up the faith that was needed to answer this call from God and to become this extraordinary person with the Holy Spirit's help. So for me, this is a moment that I want to sit in for a second because I don't want us to miss this or to move on too quickly. I think sometimes in this story, I just keep moving through it because there's an invitation in this for us. Like at Christmas, 
with Jesus, we can do all the things that we feel are impossible. All the things that, that we think are gonna crush us, we have somebody in Jesus who's with us. That with Jesus, we can change. We can become something that we are afraid we never will. We can change slowly, or like Mary and Joseph, we can change all at once. Jesus does those things. We can overcome anything that we face. Now, the Old Testament, the New Testament has passages. Uh, some of my favorites are in Jeremiah and Philippians. You can Google it later. I don't have time for it tonight. But powerful passages that talk about what it means to, through Jesus, with Jesus, have everything change, right? Christmas is about that. We see Mary and Joseph in the spiritual encounter choosing to carry it with them and become somebody new, something lasting. Now, there's another part of this that is brand new to me this year too that I've never noticed before. Uh, all the years that my parents were like, we're going to Christmas uh, church this year. And I'm like, okay, as long as I get good toys, I'll go. Like all the years of going to that. And then all the years since I've known Jesus of reading the Bible, reading the gospels, reading the Christmas story, I noticed this time for the very first time, Joseph doesn't have any lines in this story. Anybody ever notice that? Like if I had to go back to middle school and they wanted to put me in a church play, I'd sign up for Joseph right now, right? Like you're not having to say anything. You just get to stand there and do your best, right? As long as you don't lock your knees, everything should be okay, right? Joseph says nothing. So we know he has this angel visit him. Joseph, we were told in Matthew that Joseph's planning on getting rid of Mary. He's like, she's pregnant, the shame, the, the scandal. She says it's like, you know, nothing was going on, but I don't believe her. Joseph planned to leave and we can only start to write the story there. But it's a really simple sentence that says an angel visited him and Joseph chose to stay on the team. Joseph chose to stay with Mary. That's all we get. And, and to make it even more, you know, even more with this, like Joseph is around for about two more stories after the birth of Jesus. And then he just kind of dissolves. He's just gone. And there's scholars that guess why, speculate why. We have, we have some idea that, that maybe because Jesus has brothers, he's around for a while. And the stories just, you know, weren't the ones that got written down in that time. But Joseph disappears. And, and I don't think I've ever heard that mentioned before until I read it in a book and went back and was like, no, that can't be true, and went and read and saw that it's true. Joseph's silence is kind of stunning when you read the story, but it's also kind of powerful in its own right. Because we have Joseph, who we know, just from that simple sentence in Matthew, was facing criticism and fear and judgment and probably scared that Mary was going to be even executed for her crime in this culture. He is in this moment where he has to choose, am I really going to believe that that angel that appeared to me is making me uh, into a mindset where I can believe that change is possible and I can still be there? But I asked myself this question, why did he stay? Why did he choose to go through this? I don't know if I ever really thought about that either. I don't know if you have. I think the answer is both like simple and complex at the same time. I really believe this encounter changed his heart profoundly, that the spirit with him made everything that was going to come, every battle they were going to face worth it. And we know from the scripture, from the story that's about to unfold, that the battle was rough that they had to go through. Now, the Christmas story kind of centers, one of the main uh, settings for the Christmas story is this kind of unimportant event in our culture, something that I think never think about uh, and, and don't have to. It's a census, right? 
So a census for me is a couple pieces of mail, maybe an annoying phone call or two, right? I think of it kind of like those tests they made you take in middle school and high school where I just made pictures with the bubbles because I'm like, who cares, right? Um, the census is something I don't think about or give time to. Now, maybe I should. Sorry if I, if I should. But, but it's, it's not something that I think about in our culture. But for Mary and Joseph, it was a, a very important requirement, a serious thing that they had to go do. Uh, and like most things that are political, uh, most things that are controlling it was mostly about money, right? The Roman government might have used a tagline. They might have said, hey, we count people because people count. But what they were actually doing was applying one simple metric. How much money can we get out of the people that we have in this occupied Jewish population? That's all it was, that's all it was about. And it entailed for Mary and Joseph and for every other person, every other citizen to travel back to their ancestral home, to the place where their family's from, to be counted, that feels pretty Christmassy by itself, right? Traveling, like some of you have traveled here. Maybe this is where you're from. You're here to be with family. Some of you, unless your flight's canceled already, which don't check until I'm done, but you might be traveling tomorrow or the next day to go see family, to go back to where you're from, to be with them. Mary and Joseph had to go do this. Um, you know, spend the three to seven days in tight quarters like Christmas vacation, like whatever it might be. They're with their family and that feels pretty Christmassy to me. So this takes our couple, Mary and Joseph, to the, the town of Bethlehem, where Joseph's ancestral home is. And famously, we know this. Mary is getting closer and closer to giving birth. But one of the things that I think is really true, like, is that a lot of times in Christmas and the stories told in church and stuff, people add things to it that aren't there. Most scholars say that Mary and Joseph probably weren't in some panicked rush and they didn't just stumble upon some cave and set up shop and have a baby all of a sudden, right? When you actually read the story, what you find is something different. There's no donkey. Mary didn't ride on a donkey that we know of. She might have, but it's not in the story. In fact, Mary probably walked 70 to 80 miles over the course of about three days with Joseph, even pregnant, to get to this place because that's what she did in that culture. We're told in the story this. This is what the scripture does say. It says, while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. All right, most of us have heard that before. And, and I don't know what you picture when you picture the story, what the inn looks like, what that, what all, that all means, but I've always pictured it like this. Uh, one time I was uh, taking a group of kids of college students down to uh, New Orleans right after Hurricane Katrina, and we had booked a hotel months, like a year ahead, and the national championship for football happened to be like the same day that we got there. And so I go to the hotel we're supposed to check into, and I'm like, yeah, we have like six rooms or whatever. And the guy looks at me, he's like, are you crazy? He's like, there's a football game across the street. It's the national championship. Your rooms have been rebooked. They paid way more than you. And it's a really nice way of him saying, please go away, right? And I, and I used to picture the Christmas story like that. And Mary and Joseph are looking at, you know, a Motel 6 or Super 8 or whatever it is that they can find, and they're being turned away over and over again. But this word for N is a word that's only used two times in the book of Luke. And the second time that it's used makes it pretty clear that the word actually is a better fit as, uh, as translated as guest room. Mary and Joseph were turned away from a guest room. And it might sound like it's not important, but here's why it's important. It's actually a, a really important thing. This story is about a family, right? So as Joseph had gone to his hometown and taken Mary, his fiance, with him, Joseph is from the line of King David, which if you know much about the Old Testament, you know that David, uh, the, the Savior, the, the Messiah, has been promised to come from David's line. David uh, is an important figure in history, and Joseph is from that family. He's an important family. 
The, the Advent book that Lindsay and I used for this year's uh, series that we kind of studied through, uh, was written by a guy named Scott Erickson, and he writes it like this. He says, in this ancient city, family stayed with family, especially pregnant ones. He says this, we today exist in a highly individualized society where it's normal not to stay overnight in your aunt and uncle's guest room. Preferable, right? But hospitality and familial connections were a first priority back then. And then he goes on to say this. He goes on to say that what the couple likely faced was a cramped house full of, of Joseph's family. Uh, you know, Cousin Eddie with the RV in the, in the front porch and everything. They all chose uh, to, to not move for this expecting couple. That each room that was occupied saw Mary and Joseph and said, we don't want you to take this room. We don't approve of you. We can write whatever story we want to there, right? The stuff that maybe we think happened. So the only place that would have been left in this family's house and this place where they all came to gather would have been the lowest level of the house, which is the place where they took the animals in at night to make sure that the cold didn't kill them. So the, the kind of scene of the barn and things like that is probably uh, in a room like that. And Erickson calls it uh, the setting of an unplanned family reunion more than an empty hotel or a full hotel. Nobody would move for them. Nobody thought it was worthy, or that they were, it was worthwhile or fitting to give them space which is, I think, more nefarious than some sold-out inn, right? Because the census national championship is about to happen, whatever that might look like. But the decision to follow this call for Mary and Joseph, to believe that their encounter with these angels really was changing, that Jesus really was with them, that God really was choosing them. The choice they were making to follow that meant that their family encounter in Bethlehem would be awful, that they'd be treated poorly, that they'd be ignored maybe, maybe worse. And nobody would give care to this obviously volatile situation where giving birth is, is still scary now. It was so scary then, right? But the fact that the Holy Spirit was with them made it possible for them to withstand and even to thrive in this situation. This is the scene of the birth of Jesus. It's underdogs overcoming circumstances. And our own stories have these kind of wrinkles in them too. Family that wishes that we were different, Right? Family with expectations of what our life might have looked like. Like what you would do for a living, where you, would, where you would live, like who you would end up with, right? Where you would go to church or not go to church, how you would vote. And these expectations can be crushing for us at times. But the message of Jesus in the flesh, Jesus with us, this, this thing that we call the incarnation of Jesus becoming flesh and blood and moving into the neighborhood, as John puts it, is that we're not alone no matter what we're going through, is that Jesus is with us always. And that we're gonna be okay because the Holy Spirit is with us and will guide us, will hold us, will give us the space of acceptance and love, will give us room to rest, will give us the place to figure out what all of this thing that we call life means. And not a single one of us has to go at it alone. That's what Christmas really is about and what it is. We're not alone. Even if the seat that's next to you is empty and it shouldn't be, Jesus is close and Christmas is when he proved it, right? More than 2,000 years after this scene in a guest room in this house, when Jesus is born, a savior is born unto us. More than 2,000 years later, after Jesus had lived a perfect life on earth, he's arrested, he's crucified, he dies a criminal's death on a cross. He takes on the sin 
the death that each person that's ever lived has accrued and, and should be punished for. Jesus does that. We call that Easter, right? Jesus is crushed. He's abandoned. And I think that in this one moment, when Jesus has this pause, he's on the cross and he has this moment where he feels the abandonment. He feels like God has left him. I think the silence and the judgment of that empty room in that house had to have come back. Right? Jesus taking on the legacy of Christmas and calling it Easter, right? God, fully human, misunderstood by his family, misunderstood by his friends, misunderstood by the place he lives and the government, persecuted. 2,000 years later, it all comes into focus and makes sense. Uh, to Paul, uh, this man that wrote, wrote most, of the, most of the New Testament, he wrote these words about Jesus. He said this, he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus, all things hold together. For God was pleased to have all of God's fullness dwell in Jesus, and through Jesus to reconcile to God all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And I think this, I think in some simple ways, like we human beings of flesh and blood, we're just like carbon and chemicals and simple math, right? We can be explained a lot of different ways, but the mystery of life in the universe and how we came to be and where we're going and what all of this means is the ultimate question that all of us face. And I believe that it's addressed at the incarnation, at Jesus taking on flesh and blood. It's addressed on this day that we call Christmas. The incarnation tells us that every question has an answer and that every pain has an ending and that every tear will dry up because Jesus is with us. And that we're named and we're known. We're not anonymous throwaway people. We're people with a purpose and a plan. We belong to a maker. We belong to a maker that wants us to know that even when we feel most alone, we're not. That Christmas is the signaling of the Holy Spirit's impending promise coming true. That Jesus, the baby, will become Jesus, the Savior. The presence of Jesus is with us. It's here and it's available. And in times when life is really good, maybe we forget that because we're feeling like, you know, we have it all figured out. And when times in life when everything's falling apart, we forget it because the walls are closing in and we don't know where to turn to next. But the thing about Christmas is that Jesus is with us, flesh moving into our neighborhood. It really means that we get to have that Christmas thing every single day. Jesus is in the sunrise. Jesus is in the words to that song that touches your soul and you can't really explain why, right? Jesus is in the middle of everything. He's in the laugh of your kids. Jesus is in the eyes of the person that you love or that you wish you could love. Jesus is in the acts of kindness that make you push through to another day. Jesus is with us when we have that meeting at work. Jesus is with us when that phone call comes or when that text lights up our phone at 2 a.m. and everything's different. Jesus is with us. He's with us. Jesus is with us. 
So Kendrick, would you stand with us tonight as we continue to celebrate that we have a God that didn't sit by and watch, but a God that took on flesh and bone, moved into our neighborhood, and a God that is with us always.